This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. So I think the challenge is that if anti-blackness is the norm for America, it invariably is going to become the norm inside of corporations. We've talked previously on this podcast about the effort to create a more diverse and inclusive workplace at Netflix. It's a big focus at the company, and it's still very much a work in progress. Doing that work and making progress means confronting some ugly realities, like the anti-black racism that's had such an impact on American life, including our work life, over the last few centuries. I'm Lyle Troxell. Over the next two episodes of We Are Netflix, we'll feature a conversation between two leaders of our inclusion strategy team, Vernay Myers and Wade Davis. They'll talk about the pervasive influence of anti-Black racism in society and in the corporate world, and what it will take to heal and move forward from our history. Vernay Myers, who heads up our inclusion strategy at Netflix, is a prominent social commentator, founder of the Vernay Myers Company, and the author of Moving Diversity Forward, How to Go from Well-Meaning to Well-Doing, and What If I Say the Wrong Thing, 25 Habits for Culturally Effective People. Wade Davis, who leads our product inclusion team, is a former NFL player and an educator on gender, race, and orientation equality. In part one of this two-part series, Wade and Vernay discuss the effects of anti-blackness, the importance of recognizing racial inequities in the workplace, and helping employees to understand their role in ending those disparities. In part two, they'll talk more specifically about steps required to build an organization that's not only multicultural, but combats anti-blackness and fosters allyship. The conversation was moderated by guest host Lexi Nasita, Director of Editorial and Publishing on our marketing team. So we're here today to talk about these difficult times, as they are so often referred to, and the anti-Black racism that has been pervading our country for so long, but is now being talked about in what really feels like a different way with a different kind of energy. Um, Of course, the reality is that that has been the everyday life for many people in America, and the fact that a lot of white people are just finding out about it is actually frustrating sometimes. And I think in these moments, it's really important that we stay very honest, very open, very connected. And that's exactly the spirit of discussion and debate and learning and growth that our inclusion team tries to set. So today we're going to talk about how anti-Black racism exists specifically in the corporate world and how our supposed utopian environments in California or New York or on the coast interact with the realities of America at large. And the ultimate question, which is, is it possible to build a truly anti-racist corporation? So I want to start, Vernay and Wade, and just ask you, how are you right now? Tell me in a few words how you're currently feeling. Wade, you want to go, go first? Go ahead, V. Uh, sure. <laughs> um, in one word, actually, I'm feeling quite optimistic. You know, um, I think that this is probably the first time in my 42 years on this planet where I actually think that folks are turning the mirror closer to facing themselves. I don't think it's fully turned, but I think that folks are attempting to locate themselves in the oppression that that black folks are facing. Yeah, I would uh, I would second the optimism, but I would also add a little fatigue. Right. So what's been interesting, as you said, Lexi, is that once, you know, you get a lot more people than had been paying attention to these issues, you also have to figure out 
you know, how to guide them and how to make sure that our allies are actually helping uh, and also not necessarily centering themselves in this work, but really thinking about how to um, assist others. So um, we've been working really hard, uh, but I also feel optimistic. I mean, today the Redskins are dropping that name. Uh, Uncle Ben's might take, they may have to take that picture off. I mean, this is like groundbreaking. Um, So I'm feeling like it's a different time and I'm hoping to be part of sustaining it. So, I mean, you guys have been working around the clock, it sounds like. I'm curious, what are some of the questions you've heard or the concerns? Because I I assume you've been hearing both from allies and from Black employees themselves who are struggling in this moment. What have you been hearing? Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is true about all companies in particular is that, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but I think it is to many that While so many of our companies and industries have been built by white folks, by male white folks, and so forth, just like in any situation where you are the founder or the builder or the shaper, it reflects you and who you are and what you value and Uh, how you act and what behavior you deem as good and right and true. And so what we're hearing more and more than we have ever heard is, yeah, this culture, this way of doing things, the what we value doesn't necessarily reflect an inclusive mindset and it's not culturally competent. And as a result, our experiences are less positive than they could be. In other words, that inclusive environment, we still have a lot to do to create that space. Yeah. And for me, I would say there's probably two standard questions that people ask is the first one is like, what can I do to help? And I shake my my head and just pray for patience. And the second one is people asking um, to understand like what the in quotes black experience is. And I think that both of those questions allow people to sit in a certain type of innocence and a certain type of distance from locating the problem within themselves, within our country, and and within our larger world. Yeah. It seems like a pretty universal experience right now across the country that Black folks are being asked to educate white people as if this just started as if there was no way for them to find out about it. And I think that can come from a good place sometimes. But um, do you want to talk a little bit more about why that's an unfair burden? Well, Black people did not invent racism. Um, it is an outcome of white supremacy. It's it's something that came over from Europe and that just became insidious and ubiquitous and mundane and something that I believe that as as long as you're asking the person who you believe is directly impacted by racism, you can remove yourself from being implicated in it. And you know the the question of like what can I do to help assumes that racism only works in one direction. But folks who are not black have to understand that racism impacts us us all in different ways. Um, but it strips all of us of our humanity. So I often think that the reason why folks love to locate racism in something outside of themselves is is because people so deeply want to see themselves as a good person, right? And goodness is self-defined. It's not 
something that someone else can tell you whether you're a good or bad person. But that's actually not the question. The question is like, what are you actively doing every day to unlearn anti-Blackness? What are you doing every day to dismantle the, the systems that, that keep it enacted? And then what are you willing to give up in order for anti-Blackness and all forms of racism disappear? Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, Wade, because you and I were talking about it this morning, is that the idea that I can just run up to a person who's already having the direct impact of anti-Blackness, anti-Black racism, they're feeling it. If we're talking about George Floyd or if we're talking about even Amy Cooper up in the park trying to get a, bur- a Black birder killed by the police, right? Um, you know, this whole thing that, that Wade said about innocence, like you can't, at this stage of the game, basically you can't feign innocence and you can't just be like, teach me, help me. Right. Because what a lot of black people are saying, which was your earlier question, is I'm tired and I'm really tired of trying to educate others. And I'm not sure I even trust what you will do with the information I give you. Right. Because the way racism has been perpetuated is to look at the things that people are saying their experiences and then to use that against them as like how they are insufficient. What we do is we use that information that black people share, right? Or we use the, the, the ways in which they are disproportionately impacted negatively by like something like COVID. And then we turn it on them and say, well, you know, that's probably your fault or you should do this better. Or did you think about this? Or, you know, were you a little, a little too angry in that situation, right? So one of the thing, one of the reasons why some black folks are like, look, I don't really want to have this conversation is because they've had so much experience with people actually not taking that uh, information and doing something different inside of them and then figuring out how to leverage their white privilege on behalf of others. And so I think I know that some allies are put off when, uh, you know, when black people kind of recoil from that question, what should I do? But that's the reality of, that's the lived experience of a lot of black people is that they've been helping uh, to share this information and it's not actually benefited them. And so we really are in a situation where allies have a lot of work to do in order to be useful in this space. I'm curious how you see that nuance interacting with your role on the inclusion team, which, you know, I think a lot of people see you as a resource that they want to come to and they want to be able to almost like the therapy, probably you get treated that way sometimes. And how do you sort of square your role as a team that is really trying to help every employee within this organization to ultimately make a better, safer, more progressive workplace with also the duty that each individual has to educate themselves? Wait, can I take this one and you can come yes, behind please. me? I feel, I feel really strong about this. You're the our leader, so yes, definitely. Yeah, the inclusion <laughs> team is here for all of it. Like, we are the advisors, we are the educators, we are the people who are paid for this. But a bunch of your colleagues, just because they're Black, it doesn't mean it's their job, right? So it's our job. And we are really trying to equip 
everyone with a lens, an inclusion lens, a certain kind of competency, a certain kind of consciousness. Uh, we also call it a compassion, a certain kind of courage. Like that's our vision, like that all of us will have that. And that's different than just rolling up to a black person on your team and being like, yes, can you break down institutionalized racism for me? Right. And at the same time, we need people to learn and we need our leaders to learn so that they can do this work. And because there's never going to be enough of us, but inclusion and belonging and psychological safety and all of what we want has to be available in rooms all over the place. And we can't be in all those rooms. So it's everyone's responsibility and inclusion is happy to lead us. Yeah. And the only thing I would add, you know, that I think that that we talk about a lot on the inclusion team is to think about when you were in math class and you learned how to factor or foil or do some type of a math problem and you got a test and the teacher gave you that test back and you got the answer right, but the teacher only gave you half credit because you didn't show your work. The inclusion team is here to coach, to advise, but we're going to ask you lots of deep questions to get you to think for yourself. And then you can show your work by going out and teaching others and working to educate others. So we as an inclusion team, yes, we will, to Renee's point, just give you lots of information, but our job is to also push you to think and to and to trust that everything that you need to know how to be an ally or to deal with all of the oppressions that folks ex- exist with is if you can do that for yourself and you're not always asking other people to do it for you. Absolutely. I think one thing that's so crucial in what you both just said is the understanding that inclusion work is a developed skill and it is a technique and it is an expertise. It's not something that just being born black automatically means that you are like the expert who's supposed to tell everybody about it. And it's not something that just having black friends means that you understand it as a white person. Like it is work that has to be done. And that's why there are people who have this job and people who are here to instruct and why it's, you know, something that that companies need to value in a different way and to, yes, put as a responsibility on everyone, but also to build out separate departments, which I think has been a big question for a lot of corporations of like, are we somehow, you know, allowing people to shrug off the responsibility if we build an inclusion department within the company? Um, but I think you guys have really proven that that you need both. Yeah, thank you for Lex- Lexi for saying that because it is a real skill. And folks on our team, we still keep working on the skills. We keep working on the awareness and the knowledge, right? Because where we're, we are talking about anti-Blackness right now, but there are all sorts of ways in which people feel excluded and are not able to bring their best selves, right? It could be around, you know, language, or it could be around disability or ethnicity or, you know, sexual orientation or gender identity. Like we're all still learning a lot, um, even as a team, but we also have frameworks we have skills, we have ways to apply it. Wade and I were talking about just when it comes to anti-Blackness, how much as Black people we've had to unlearn anti-Blackness, right? Because the thing is so deep and it's so embedded and it's so normalized that as a Black person doing this work or just a Black person generally living in these societies, You have to do your own personal work to throw off a lot of the misinformation and the lack of information 
about your capacity as a human being and your relevance and your dignity, right? You have, there's work that goes into doing that. It's not just magical that you come here as a black person, all of a sudden you realize your worth. So true. So true. What are some of those things that, that you've both had to unlearn? I'm curious. Well, you know, the first thing, and, and I said this to V earlier, and it's a quote by James Baldwin, and he says, not only is racism directed towards you that tells you that your life has less value because you're you're black, you also start to believe that, right? So you start to internalize those actual beliefs that because you are black, that you are less than. So you actually have to start to learn your history and the history of this country, right? Because oftentimes, well, it's true that you develop a sense of self from, from your ancestors, you know, and there's a, a reason in this country that that the full suite of American history is not taught, that Black people and women and folks who are Indigenous and LGBT are often excluded from that history because you know, because folks know that that's how you will learn to devalue and hate yourself. So the more that you can start to understand um, the full suite of American history, the good and the bad, but you can see yourself as a part of the creation of, a, of this country and to hopefully have this country become a nation one day, you can see that, that you have worth, you have value, and that, the, and that you, you also learn that there's been an intentionality behind the removal of yourself from these actual stories. And when you can start to see yourself as, as, as a full human being and not to think that you are a savage or a clown or any of the things that these narratives tell you, you can start to really start to love yourself. You know, it's so funny because I remember I was in college and I was taking U.S. history, Wade, and I was like, uh, at some point, I just raised my hand and I asked the professor, so where are the black people? Like, what are we doing? during?" <laughs> right? Because basically what you got was like slavery and then we were rioting in the sixties. Like that was like how us history was taught. And I was just like, well, were, were we doing something? What else were we doing? You know? And then it takes a while to, um, to know that we were in the Harlem Renaissance and we were these incredible poets and, you know, musicians. And how did I miss this? I mean, I remember actually realizing that things weren't as good as I had hoped. Like, I don't know, I was getting mad with my parents when I was in college because I was like, how come they didn't tell me that people thought that I was less than? You know, and I, I mean, I get it. You got to make up your mind as a black parent what you want to tell your kids and what you don't want to tell your kids. Right. But basically, I really didn't realize I was black until I got to college because, I mean, I knew I was black. I just didn't know it was relevant. Like, I didn't know that it would decide about how people saw me and whether they even wanted to talk to me or how surprised they would be about my competence or, you know, their attempts to exclude me from certain parties. Like I was just like, you know, I'm a smart person. After a while, you're like, I think this is because I'm black, you know? And it was really upsetting to discover that because I think my parents wanted me to think that the racism was gone and I feel like a lot of white people up until in the last couple of months also suffered from that presumption that racism had been 
eliminated and with a few exceptions of some really bad people like Dylan Roof, you know, who can sit down at a Bible study with a bunch of black people in church and then proceed to eliminate them. Uh, so, you know, it was, it's very interesting to become aware of what you were not given and it makes you angry. Um, but then you have to work through the anger um, because there's so much great to discover. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the conversation that many Black parents would choose to have with their children about the racism that they will face in the world and preparing them for that realization. I think that, would you say it's fair to say that white parents need to be having the same conversation with their children, all white parents saying, you will find yourself enacting this. You will find yourself supporting these systems if you don't start paying attention to it. And that education is not something that should only be kept within Black communities to understand the realities, but it needs to happen on both sides. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, I 100% agree. You know, part of, I think, the challenge is the fact that white parents aren't talking to their kids about whiteness and the nature of it and how much harm it not just caused to black kids, but how it, what the harm it also causes to white kids as well. And I think, again, like we, we always think that racism and anti-blackness is one way, but there is a residual, like really negative impact on white kids as, as well. And I, I actually think that the reason why they don't talk to their kids about whiteness is because they don't know how to articulate it in a way that speaks to it holistically. And they want to only talk about the good sides of it, but you would have to be, um, you would have to intentionally omit, you know, a part of American history. And you would then, you would recreate the, the exact same type of oppression and lie, you know, to your children that America has done to the larger world. So I actually think that that it's it's more important that white parents talk to their kids about whiteness and not just about racism that black people experience because you've got to figure out a way to locate yourself in it. And I think that that's that that's one of for me it's one of the hardest parts to talk to parents about is to say how do you talk to your child not about racism towards black people but to talk about whiteness and white supremacy. Yeah, I would I would echo that. That's really important work and it makes a huge difference when it's coming from white people to white people. And I that's another thing that like see at the top of the uh, the conversation you will like, you know, what do you talk to what do you say to white people who are asking, you know, can you what should I do, right? Because I feel like it's assuming that black people are the only teachers. And in fact, um, white folks are really needing to teach each other and their children in particular. I, I remember my son had this great teacher in middle school. She was a white girl. She was from woman. She was from Vermont. And one day, you know, I don't know if you know this, but, um, if you were a parent of a black kid and my black kid was going to um, school in a predominantly white neighborhood. And so I was sort of bracing for the slavery unit. 
and I knew he would be getting to it soon. So on one of those days where I picked him up from school and you can ask your kid anything because they don't notice that you're digging in their business. Um, he's, I said, oh, so have you gotten to the slavery yet? The slavery unit yet? And he said, oh, yeah. And I was like, how was it? How are you? He said, Mom, I feel so bad for the white people. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, I mean, do you know? It must be devastating to know that your ancestors were capable of such inhumanity. And I was like, something has changed at school, okay? <laughs> because I remember having that experience um, in um you know, more like by the time I got to um, junior high school and high school and always kind of feeling like I wanted to put my head down when the conversation came up and always feeling like really on the spot. And that's also an aspect of being sort of underrepresented in a particular environment and you're a black person. But what I recognized is that his teacher, the way she framed things, she was not willing to call she was not unwilling to call out racism and the institution of slavery and so forth. And it gave my child a sense of not being diminished by the conversation. And so it was really powerful. Wow. That teacher, we might need to hire her here. I I was grateful. (laughs) I was really grateful. Well, I think talking about whiteness and anti-blackness and the intersections of all of those things Um, I think that one particular nuance of that problem we face at a place like Netflix is this idea that the whiteness that we have here in California, in a tech company, in an entertainment company, especially given that Hollywood loves to think of itself as this very, very liberal place, we like to think that we are somehow different from, you know, deep South racism and that we are exempt from that guilt and that complicity. Uh, And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. And perhaps you can Give us a history lesson there. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know the so I'm from the South. I was from Little. I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. I spent most of my adolescence in Louisiana in a small rural city called Shreveport, and I remember moving to Colorado. And the first thing that I remember is is people making fun of my accent. You know, like, oh, I can understand you, or they would say things like, oh, your accent is so cute. Or they would say things like, oh, bless your little heart, which really means bless your little stupid heart. Um, but my first thought was, <laughs> right? <laughs> my first thought was, you have an accent too, right? So I actually know you are the one who actually talks different. But, you know, I believe, and I'm probably biased, but I prefer the racism in the South versus the racism in the North. The reason is in the South, you know where, as a Black person, you know where you can't go. Like, you know, you see a Confederate flag, you actually know that this is not a place for me to go. So the uh, so the the overt forms of racism, you know, are signals that you're not welcome. But when you get to the north, you go to places like California or New York City, and they like to pretend as if they're welcome. But we all know that California is the most segregated school system in the country if you're Latino or Latinx, excuse me. And if you're in New York City, it's the most segregated school district for black kids, right? But if if you are so welcoming to black and brown people, then why are your schools so segregated, right? And if you think about um, historical black colleges and institutions, there are more of those in the South than in the North. So a lot of the the roots of the Black intellectuals, the Black 
a freedom struggle, you know, started in the South and actually never truly got to the North. And, and the North is still, you know, the most segregated parts of this actual country, a place like San Francisco, a place where you would think is a beacon of liberalism and no black people, right? So imagine you tell people that, hey, there's this place in the North where white people are open and they're welcoming and they have these really great paying jobs, we would be there in droves. But when you go to San Francisco, you look around and you got to turn a mirror to actually see someone else who looks like, like you. And the hardest part to talk to Northern liberals is they deeply, deeply believe that they are different. So, so there is, um, it's a much harder challenge to get them to own their racism, to own their anti-Blackness, because you actually take so much harder to find the floor. Whereas in, in the South, folks just say, hey, don't come here, don't go there, I don't like you N-word. And that actually is, you know, as, as Baldwin says, it's much more despicable up, up North than it is in the South, yeah. So my friends and I used to argue constantly about what was worse, um, northern or southern racism. And I would, I'm going to say it's an interesting conversation, but both, <laughs> both is not great, right? Um, so in Boston in particular, I think your point, though, is so well taken, Wade, in the sense that as long as we're in denial, we can do nothing, right? And there is a deep denial from certain groups of people. Um, I often used to joke with my clients when I was a consultant and say, you know, I understand you all are liberals. <laughs> and let me just say, the hardest people in the world to deal with on this subject is liberals because people are, and I don't mean to disparage liberals per se, but it's this idea that because I have this kind of openness or this kind of opinion that somehow I'm not complicit. Uh, but unless you are anti-racist, unless you have decided to commit to breaking down racism, you are part of the problem. And, you know, this whole neutrality move where people are like, no, I'm just not racist. <laughs> where you're like, no, you are complicit with the status quo and the status quo is racism, is racist, is anti-Black. And so if you really want to be part of the solution, you have to A, name your own racism, get out of denial, and then begin to look for what would be constructive, intentional actions to break down the racism. You know, you know, like as a Southerner, the thing about the North is, you know, the because you know the racism is there, you're always on edge and you're looking for it. Like, so you're much more hyper vigilant. You know what I mean? So it's much more destabilizing. And the, the best example I can use is me as a queer man, as a gay man. Like when I was always, before I told the world that I was gay, I was hypervigilant. I was looking everywhere to make sure that I was following certain codes, right? Or that I was performing a certain type of heteronormative masculinity that would make me feel like I was accepted into the into the status quo, right? So that hypervigilance is just like what it feels like to be in the North. You're always looking for the racism, like where the racism at? Where the racism at? But in the South, you ain't gotta look. It is, it's, it's in your face. And 
And I think right. the lack of hypervigilance that you feel in the South, like you can breathe at least for a second. Whereas in the North, you know, as Baldwin says, you can walk into almost every door. You can walk into almost every nightclub. You can walk into almost every restaurant. But the time that you walk into that one restaurant that you that you thought that you could enter and you couldn't, it's much more demoralizing because you believed that this group of people was different. It's such an important point that Wade is making about hypervigilance and the stress that that causes Black people. Like they've done so many tests that the insides of Black people are older um, than their chronological. When they control even for class and diet and everything, it's still that Black people age more quickly internally, their organs. And I think it's a lot about this hypervigilance that you're talking about, Wade. Um, and I, I mean, even if it's like, you know, I, I, like I said, I lived in Boston 30 some years, you know, it, like we would go skiing and we would get out of our car, like minding our own business to put on, get our skis out in the whole bit. And we would like look up and there'd be an entire family that was frozen and stare at us, right? <laughs> We're like, ooh, the gawk factor is high on the mountain. You know, but it is that whole thing where you're like, my very existence is troubling to you. Or at least my very existence is a surprise to you. Like you are working mm. really hard. You're working so hard that you don't notice your mouth is open and you are staring at my little son, you know? Like, and it feels like you don't belong. And that's always, it, you know what? And the thing is that you get used to being okay. Okay, I've got to tell you this story. A friend of mine was on a boat in California. You talked about California legacy. And um, it was a fishing boat. And there was a white woman who looked like she was the grandmother. We, we, we discovered it was a grandmother. And she had her you know, I think she had three white kids, her grandchildren, and she was going to take them to the bathroom as they had requested. And she went to turn to take them to the bathroom. And then she saw like four or five black guys fishing with their, and, and she just went, Oh, we can't go that way. Children, let's go around the long way. Okay. So my friend initially was like, oh, shoot, are we blocking? Are we blocking? And so he says, he goes and he looks to see if they're like fishing rods in the way. And then he goes, oh, no, it's us. She doesn't want to go by us. There's plenty of space. It's just our very being prevents her from seeing us as just some fishermen. And she went around the boat several times the long way. And then finally the kids were like, why do we keep having to go the long way? And here's an ally move. There was a white guy who had been witnessing this. And my friend said, the white guy goes, you really don't need to do this. And then she changed. I mean, I think what's, what strikes me about that story is it requires such a deep self-reflection because in some ways her first reaction was probably... She didn't even think about it. It was so instinctual. It was and like, totally instinctual. Yeah. And that's not an excuse. That is how deep rooted it is. And that's the kind of, you know, the kind of self-examination and reflection that it takes to undo that is 
not something that you can do by, you know, posting a black square on Instagram or whatever. It takes a little bit more work than that. So, And it's devastating in the sense that even when you know racism is alive and well, somehow you still get surprised by it. And it's yeah. because it's so deeply illogical. There are just so many reasons around you every day that would suggest that the presumption that black people are less than white people, that they're not as smart, they're not as talented, not as capable, they're not as trustworthy. Like there's so many examples to bump up against that belief and yet it is alive and well. And so it takes hours of yuck to get out of like, damn, I was fooled again. So life's work, I think. So I want to talk about within a corporate setting, what are the equivalents of these kind of experiences? The hypervigilant, the constant surprise of racism and anti-Blackness and how deep set it can be and how subtle it can be. I think, you know, I, I would imagine that if the North is more despicable than the South in the way that it hides it, um, a corporate setting can be even more so because you have so much formality. You have already people aren't necessarily bringing their full selves. And so it can really hide in plain sight. Um, What are the ways, I guess, in which social injustices and racism and the systems of racism in our society interact with the systems that we build up within a company like Netflix? Wow, that's a that's a heavy question. (laughs) That's a very heavy question. You just, you know, no, no, it's, it's, it's a good one. Um, You know, I'm a believer that you can't really address like society, I mean, a corporate anti-Blackness um, without addressing it societally, right? Because people make up societies, they also make up corporations, and then that is what makes like structural anti-Blackness so hard to detangle, right? Because it still requires that internal work, and most of us have such a big gap, right? So I... I think addressing the problem is tougher because businesses are created to make money, but that's not the role of a society. A role of a society is to make the people inside of it to feel safe, to uh, convince them to trust their elected leaders. Um, But whereas a corporation, you know, they aren't really acting on behalf of a society, but I think that that's probably one of the mechanisms that we can use to hold a to hold a corporation accountable if that corporation is not living up to the standards and value set up by that society right so if so i think the challenge is that if anti-blackness is the norm for america it invariably is going to become the norm inside of corporations right so i i think that all of this starts with education as Renee mentioned, like that teacher that her son had, right? Like that was an intentional act to ensure that that this child and the children in that school was, was able to detangle the history of white supremacy, right? And then to actually see Blacks, whites, Asians, Latinx folks as equal. And then when those folks grow up, right, and start to run these, these corporations, they can have... Um, uh, values um, that will infect the culture, but then also having high levels of representation across 
the entire organization, not just at the lower levels, but at the higher levels also. Like if you have that representation, if you have folks who actually see each other as equal, who are doing the daily work um, to detangle and unlearn the ways that anti-Blackness um, exists, then I think then you can, can have a corporation that that is closer that is closer to being equal and and equitable, but it would have to start with the in, the individuals who created that organization or, or corporation actually having have unlearned all of that when they were much much younger. Because I think that once you get there, right, and as you're trying to start an organization and you're bringing up folks with you, you can institutionalize anti-blackness in an, in an organization. And then it just takes years to detangle something that took minutes to create in the first place. Yeah. And what I would add is that anti-blackness, racism, all sorts of isms, right? Which is that you've really combined a bias with power and dominance. That's how something becomes an ism. Uh, that this operates on lots of levels in an organization. It could be personal, like people's beliefs, and you may not even know what they are, but they are shaping their choices about who they want to hire or who they want to promote. You have the interpersonal, which is like the behavior that goes along with those beliefs, right? And then you also have the institutional, that's the policies and the practices, whether they're formal or informal. And then you've got the overarching kind of, you know, the water of the company, the culture. So the cultural level, the racism happens on all of those levels in our company, on any company. Right. And therefore, the work is on all of those levels. And so I know that what people experience is, as I said, you know, Feelings and beliefs, it's hard to tell, but on that per interpersonal level, you'll see it as like relationships, like whether people are mentoring or not, whether they're bringing people along, whether they're promoting people, and also just what their presumptions are. <laughs> Maybe it's even something small or like what they do in a meeting and whose voice is heard or who is selected to take on a particular project or, you know, who's interrupted more frequently. Um, and that is a behavior that is often, you know, influenced by bias. Uh, it's sort of things like <laughs> um, Wade and I were also talking about this when he was a, a football player. It was great because he got a lot of love and access to men in particular, because they were like, oh, NFL, right? But he also had to deal with people being sort of surprised when he was brilliant you know, at something. And so I see that also happening uh, in our workplaces, which is like people being surprised by people's competency, which should not be a situation in Netflix, right? Because everybody is supposed to be like a very fabulous person here, right? A stunning colleague. But it also could be like just asking weird questions like, oh, you know how to do that, or you're interested in that, or right? And I think this is also borne out by a lot of our colleagues who don't live in the United States. They're often confronted with the strangest questions about their country or their ethnicity or their culture or their background. That level of ignorance is also how people experience the isms. But I think the big thing that keeps 
racism and anti-Blackness in place is policies and practices. Like I said, they don't have to be formal, but, you know, our choices about, you know, how we talk to people or who we put up in front or our choices even about this is a formal system. It's hiring. Like where we go to look for talent, where we presume talent lives, what schools they go to, what kinds of things they would have done. Like we have that elitism like a lot of organizations, and that's often coupled by socioeconomic class issues, and that's often coupled by race issues. Obviously, gender becomes an issue also if we look at the intersectionality of like Black women and what's difficult for them in the workplace. So I guess we wouldn't have enough time on this podcast to really <laughs> to really go through. You don't all think of you can do it in thirty minutes? No, seriously. <laughs> but what I do know is, and also culture, which seems invisible to people, but we hear people say, "Okay, folks say we should be straightforward, we should be honest, we should be candid." But when I'm honest and straightforward and candid, apparently that's interpreted as I'm being too aggressive. This happens a lot with women. This happens with black folks or I'm too angry or I didn't I didn't do it the right way. Right. So then they're like different interpretations of the same behavior. Hmm. You've been listening to part one of our two part series addressing anti-blackness and promoting allyship in the workplace. Be sure to join us for part two as Renee and Wade explore what it will take to create an anti-racist organization at Netflix and the implications for hiring, leadership, and company culture. We on Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxell. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We on Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.